What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 30 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to the podcast today. In today's episode, we're speaking to Neil Mercer. Neil is Emeritus Professor of Education at the University of Cambridge and Director of the RIC at Cambridge Study Centre. Prior to this, he was Professor of Language and Communication at the Open University. Neil's persistent interest in the role of language in the classroom and the role of language in supporting the development of students' thinking has driven him to innumerable research papers to present internationally on this important topic and to write many books, such as Exploring Talk in School, Dialogue and the Development of Children's Thinkings, and Language, Literacy and Learning. Most recently, Neil co-authored with Karen Littleton the book Interthinking, about which we'll be talking today as well as the highly practical Thinking Together classroom resources about which you'll hear me speak enthusiastically in the following interview. In this wide-ranging discussion, Neil and I talk about the role of language in evolution, parallels between language and evolution, prejudices against group work, typologies of talk, groupthink, the conceptual space of a conversation, and many more fascinating topics. The first half of the interview is primarily focused on theory, which builds a solid foundation for a focus on classroom practice and me sharing a vignette of trying out the Thinking Together resources in the second half of the interview. I hope that this discussion inspires you to further explore how to scaffold student talk and interthinking in your classroom. Before we jump into this episode, just a reminder about my weekly email entitled Teacher Ollie's Takeaways, in which I share a handful of insightful, interesting, and actionable articles that I've come across from Twitter blogs and various other sources in the week just past. It comes out at 3.30 on a Friday afternoon, perfectly timed for your weekend reading pleasure. Last week's email contained links to a great article and a great podcast on the topic of mastery learning, a new classroom observational tool, an exploration of whether teaching methods should be prescribed, and much, much more. And if you've been enjoying the ERRR podcast, I would be immensely grateful if you were to become a patron. Becoming a patron involves saying thank you by donating as little as $1 a month to support the ongoing production of the show. Creating the ERRR entails various costs from purchasing the books that I read in preparation for the interviews to web hosting and hiring a sound engineer, not to mention the cost of my own time. So if you'd like to support the show, please go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to sign up. And now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 30 of the ERRR podcast with Neil Mercer. Neil Mercer, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thanks very much, Oliver. It's great to be here. Good stuff. Now, Neil, first question we always ask people is, if you're at a party and someone says, hi, Neil, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Well, I usually say I'm a psychologist, and I'm a psychologist who studies the use and development of spoken language and children's thinking. That's what I usually say. Okay. And could you give us a bit of a history of your career to date? Yeah, I did a first degree in psychology at University of Manchester, 
I then went to the University of Leicester and uh, did a PhD there. And after that, briefly, I had a job as a lecturer at the University of Leicester. And then I moved to the Open University. I, I'd been a psycholinguist when I was a PhD student, meaning I was doing laboratory-based work on the production of spontaneous speech. And while I was finishing that, I started to read about things that were happening in language in education, such as Lebov's work in the States on non-standard English, and Basil Bernstein's work in the UK about children from different social classes having different codes being brought up with different codes, which influence their participation in education. Mm -hmm. And um, Shirley Bryce Heath, who'd done some work there on children from different ethnic backgrounds in the States. And I started to really become very dissatisfied with laboratory-bound psychology. I felt it was tending to create problems to study rather than studying problems that were there to be solved. And so I realized that I thought that one of the areas in which you could most of all look at what was really needing to be understood and helping in some way was education. Mm -hmm. So although I hadn't trained as a teacher, I felt that was the area which these people like Bernstein and others and Douglas Barnes, who's one of my sort of academic heroes, were really doing useful work on talk. And then a job came up at the Open University, which was for a lecturer in language and education. So I, I was quite happy to switch to go there. And I stayed there about nearly 30 years because that's, that's what I was there to do. And so that's really the way my career has developed. And so once having made that shift, I really, I really stuck with that, that new direction, if you like. And it was on the basis of that work that I then went to Cambridge about uh, whatever is it now, about 15 years ago or something. And so that's, that's really me, I think, summing it up. That's great. And so that kind of brings us to the present day, or at least a few years ago, when you decided to write the book about which we'll be speaking today, which is entitled yeah. Interthinking. Now, I'm curious, why did you feel that this book was necessary to write? I felt it because there has been, I think, certainly in psychology, too much focus on the individual. I think there's an understandable assumption that thinking is something that goes on inside a person's head and that psychology is about understanding what goes on in people's heads as individuals. But it seemed to me and to people I was working with that in fact the most creative and important thinking typically goes on in conversations or at least some sorts of interactions mm. and the idea that we were the dominant species of the world because we each had a very large brain which you know enabled us to outwit other people seemed to me massively misguided because we don't on the whole we're not using technology today you and i sitting here that was invented by one clever person sitting on their own thinking mm. and in fact that applies to everything around us and yet that process which typifies humanity, which is that we can create a mega brain from our individual brains in a way that no other animals at all can, seemed to me the essence of, of human intelligence. And therefore, we needed to understand it. And likewise, it seemed to me that that process, although it can be immensely successful, commonly goes wrong as well. 
So that's where, yeah, there is a problem to be understood. And also, you know, if it's what we're meant to be doing well to make the world work well, are children being taught how to do it or being encouraged and enabled to do it? So those are all the reasons why we thought that. And the word interthinking, my wife, Lynn Dawes, who uh, I've done a lot of work with, we're still not quite sure which of us thought of that word, but that's the whole point. Yeah. You know, <laughs> came up somehow in a conversation. And so we've used it since. Because, you know, the idea being that you don't just use language to interact, you use it to interthink. Mm. That's great. And this was the kind of evolutionary comments you made just then were, yeah. were the first part in the book that really started to get me excited because it was a, quite a different kind of presentation of our evolutionary advantage or kind of the things that lead to differential survival than things I've seen before, for example, in Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene. And yeah. books like that. So, do you think this is a, a grossly overlooked kind of thesis in terms of differential survival and, and human evolution? And similarly, could you give us a bit more information about the role of language in this collective thinking that you've been speaking about? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I do think it's very, I do think the collective nature of human intelligence has been overlooked in evolutionary explanations of our origins. I think the whole way that we became able to become the dominant species in the world is because we learned, amongst other things, how to control our environment. So unlike other animals that have to go to where the environment suits them, we, we actually change it to suit us. I mean, there are some animals that do it somewhere, like beavers, mm-hmm. a good example that they make. But, they, you know, that's about it. I think you've got a legacy, which is to some extent is a sort of a male-dominated perspective on, on evolution, which is all about the strong man overcoming the weak. And it's misunderstanding, I think, of Darwinism, of being, you know, the strength overcomes weakness and the survival of the fittest. But it's never the individual who needs to survive. I mean, if, if one individual survives of a species, that's it. It's over. The, the only survivors as collectives. And therefore, as well as the genetic aspect of it, you've actually got, in any one generation, you've got differential survival of groups. And groups that are best at organizing themselves are likely to be the ones that survive. You asked about that role of language in it. I think we now know, in a way that wasn't clear, for example, when Steven Pinker was writing his books about language, we now know that language is much more integrated with the whole brain than used to be thought, partly through the sort of legacy and influence of Chomsky on people like Pinker, there was this tendency for language to be almost seen as a sort of thing that had developed separate from mainstream intelligence or mainstream thinking, almost like an app, you know, that kind of humans suddenly got, as well as the main brain. Mm. But in fact, we don't know that's not true. It's actually much more integrated and, and language that some of the parts of the brain, neuroscience has shown that are concerned with language processing, are also concerned with, for example, processing music and other things. So it's pretty clear that language evolved as the brain evolved and as the species evolved as a distinctive species. And what we gained from it wasn't just a way of understanding, as Pinker says, you know, transmitting precise facts from one mind to another. We, we, we never could do that. We don't do that now. I, I'm sure if you and I wrote down what we, we thought we talked about after this interview 
and then compared notes, they wouldn't be just the same. No. I mean, Pinker was completely wrong with the idea that we don't cause precise facts to arrive in other people's minds, but we are able to share information and review and our actions and plan in a way other animals can't. I mean, bees have a sort of language, but they can't come back to the hive at the end of the day and one of them say, hey, you know, I don't think it went very well today. I think we're going about this in the wrong strategy. I think tomorrow we should do this. Does anybody else think? We can do that. Mm. And that's what makes the difference. So language is intensely and, and completely bound up with the very nature of, of human thinking, which has been designed evolutionarily to be collective rather than individual. Mm. Something you write about several times in your book is how this language-centric approach builds on a socio-cultural understanding. So yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you could explain to listeners a little bit more about what you mean by this socio-cultural understanding and why it matters. Yeah, sociocultural theory has really emerged from the work of, of the Russian psychologist Lev Vygotsky, who lived in the early part of the 20th century. And he developed some ideas about how children's intelligence and thinking, how children's cognition developed, and therefore how education should take account of that. He was a contemporary of, of Jean Piaget, the Swiss psychologist, whose ideas were much, much more influential up till relatively recently when it came to thinking of child development. And Piaget didn't really see language as having a particular important role in the shaping of children's thinking. He kind of typified children as kind of the lone explorer in the world who makes sense of the world through trying things out, handling objects, watching things happen, interacting with other people, but on the whole, forming their own kind of conceptions which became more and more elaborate as they go on. Vygotsky, on the other hand, saw children as being born into a world of interaction and conversation. And he suggested that once the child has acquired language, their thinking is transformed forever. And he meant that you're born into a, a world where you hear other people making sense of it. You don't just get born into a world and walk around and say, what's this? Oh, it bounces, you know. Yep. You walk into a world where people say, hey, grab this ball. Look what you can do with it. Let's go and play. You know, no, you're breaking the rules, you know, things like that. So he had these really good ideas about the relationship between the social, what we sometimes call the intermental, meaning the mentality that's in the world, in the social world, and the intramental, meaning what's in your own head, and he suggests that the two kind of like a Venn diagram become overlapped and that children therefore are shaped by their experiences as well as by their individual actions. You know, he, he was a great admirer of Piaget. He wasn't saying you're completely wrong. He was just saying, let's get the balance right. He wasn't saying throw out those ideas. So in that sense, he was the founder of this kind of approach called sociocultural psychology or sociocultural theory. And he died pretty young from tuberculosis and didn't really manage to carry out all the studies he was intending. So his ideas were sort of left hanging, rather, and were got rather lost under Stalinism in Russia when he, his, idea was, his ideas were suppressed because they were seen as, I think, a bit too uh, touchy-feely. And, and, and Stalin preferred, you know, Pavlov and his dogs, you know, that kind mm. of psychology. Mm. So they only got resurrected in the 60s when people like Michael Cole and other people started to translate his work. 
And then when they did, they really were inspired to start looking at whether his ideas stood up to empirical, you know, ex- research. And and I came in on that rather later than then. That they were the kind of people I was reading about when I was a student. But it seemed to me that what they were finding was suggesting he was right. And I think the more we work we've done, not just me and my colleagues, but people generally in the world, the more and more it seems obvious that Vygotsky's approach is, is, is the right one. And that a sociocultural theory rather than a purely cognitivist individual theory of the development of human thinking individually and collectively is, is the right one to go for. So I, th- I think it makes a lot of sense to, to, to go for that. And that's why it's called sociocultural, because it's, it's taking account of both the social interaction and the cultural setting of, of where children grow up. So therefore, you know, the extent or the richness of their, of their experiences in early life can be massively influential on how well they become educated and how effective they are as thinkers. Thanks for that, Neil. It's really fantastic to to hear kind of Piaget and Vygotsky in the historical context that you've offered there as well. That's very illuminating for me as well. So we've been talking about thinking together and all these yeah. things are very related to and lead very much into group work. And that's yeah. essentially what we're in large part going to be talking about today. However, there is a bit of a prejudice by some groups in the educational community against group work and and you know you write about this yourself in your book and I'll, I'll quote a small passage here it comes from a story about a regional education conference you write at a regional education conference several years ago two participants were observed walking out during the introduction of a concurrent session after introducing the topic the presenter asked participants to form into small groups for further work obviously distraught over this methodological turn in the session one turned to the other and said don't they just lecture anymore? I get sick of this group work stuff. And in addition to this, you know, debate currently rages on Twitter about this group work kind of thing. And Tez in the UK, the teaching organization, yeah. even released a blog post last year that said uh, why it's time to say goodbye to group work. Why do you, Neil, think there are so many negative appraisals of group work? I, I think because a lot of the group work that goes on in schools and in workplaces is a waste of time. And that's why people don't like it, because they've sat through it and or they've seen it's not really got anywhere. And I think that's perfectly understandable. You wouldn't want to do anything that seemed a waste of time. Well, if you're working on your own to read or understand something, well, you know what you're doing. If you waste your time, it's your own fault, but nobody else's. Mm. And so you can be drawn into wasting time by people who are wasting your time. So I, I think that's perfectly understandable. But the reason it happens, well, that's the one side of the, the equation. The other side is there's so much research that shows in education, in educational settings, that group work helps children understand science, literature, whatever, in ways that they just never would if they were just being taught individually in a sort of monologic way. And in the workplace, there's so many examples of how creative solutions have been found to things in industry and, and, and other, you know, various settings through people working in creative and collaborative teams. And as I said, our whole evolution is based on groups of people collectively solving problems. So there's a paradox there between mm. people 
group work's a waste of time. I'm fed up with it. And it being stuff that really works. And in fact, it's the solution, the explanation of our success as a species. The reason why I think a lot of teachers get fed up with group work is because, well, they just haven't taught their students how to work in groups. I mean, they wouldn't say, right, we're going to do something called long division now. I'm sure you know how to do it. Just go and get on with it. They would teach them, wouldn't they? Mm. You know, or they were saying, well, you're going to play this game called football. Just, you know, it's got rules, but you'll work on it. You know, they wouldn't do it. But they say, well, no, I'll put you in a group and you talk about it in a group together. You just talk together. And then they say, oh, well, they're not doing anything. What did you get from it? Well, nothing much, miss. Well, that's because they've assumed that they know how to do it. And the same applies with adults. I mean, I've sat in meetings where you'd think people didn't know how to work in groups. In universities, I've sat in meetings like that. Those people might, but if they did, they certainly weren't showing you. And so it's because, uh, again, as humans, we're unlike the bees, we're not born with the language hardwired in and we just know how to use it. We have to learn how to use this wonderful toolkit called language through trying it out and, and being taught how to use it. And there are perfectly sensible ways that we've developed and other people developed of, of teaching children how to work well in groups. And when you do, the paradox is resolved because the group work works really well. It complements the direct teaching. It should never be used instead of you know, direct instruction. It's, it's something you use when it's useful. And you give them activities that benefit from people sharing minds, where two minds are better than one. You, if you give them the wrong kind of activities, again, it's a waste of time. If it's something you'd be better doing on your own, why give them that to do in a group? Mm. So it's a mixture of, I understand people being frustrated by it, but it's mainly because the students haven't been told how to work in groups and or they're being given activities that aren't suitable or, or, or benefit from group work. And once you realize that, you know, it's very, very short-sighted to say, well, I'm, you know, as, as you say, as the Times Education said, why it's time to say goodbye to group work. What it should be saying is why it's time to say goodbye to teachers who can't handle group work because they're the ones who are letting everybody down. And they just need to teach their kids how to work in groups. You know, and once they do, I know people who've done this and, you know, they're converted, they've transformed the quality of the group work. And I've been in classrooms and the difference is astonishing. And it's a shame that people don't because you really do learn through groups. We've got lots of hard evidence there showing that well-designed group work really gets students understanding things and learning to, as Jay Lemke once said, they, you know, if they're students of science, they learn how to be fluent speakers of science. And they'll do that amongst other ways through group works. And if, not just our studies, but, you, you know, with Christine Howe, my colleague at Cambridge, her work with primary children in Scotland and so on shows how effective group work is. Bob Slavin's work in the States with maths, group work. Noreen Webb in the States as well. But there are lots of people around who've got lots of hard evidence that group work works, but only when it's well organized and well designed and well planned. Mm, fantastic. And something you said there piqued my interest a bit, or well, many things did, but I'm going to comment on one of them right now. And that was when you were speaking about how people aren't just born with the ability to talk effectively with each other. Because in my reading to date, I've come across this proposed distinction between two types of knowledge. You know, one is biologically primary and one is biologically secondary. And this comes from David Geary. Have you come across this distinction before? No. Okay. So David Geary and his reference, frequently referenced by people like John Sweller. Oh, yeah. 
who I'm sure you've heard of. Um, and this suggests that, you know, humans are built with some kind of modules such as language, etc. And we have an innate ability to pick up on how to speak. So, for example, if I'm if I'm born into a society that speaks a certain language, I will just naturally learn how to speak that language. Some yeah. things are biology primary and some things are secondary, like how to, you know, do your times tables or how to do algebra or something. Yeah. And I have seen many proponents of this kind of biologically primary, biologically secondary distinction to speak about group work as something that's biologically primary. But it seems like that's something that you, you fundamentally disagree with. It's really a, a, a taught skill that we need to develop and support the development of in our students. Yeah, I mean, everybody's got the capacity to interact, but as they got the skill capacity to interthink, I mean, that's that's the point. I think, I don't know whether that distinction is useful or not, to be honest, because I haven't read about it, I'm sorry. But I think it's hard to, I would find it hard as I'm just hearing it firsthand, to distinguish between two different kinds of knowledge in that way, because it seems to me that while we have a certainly have a module, if you like, in the brain, which is means that we are able to pick up, as you said, without effort, really, the language that we're of the community we're born into, and even to learn more than language really easily before the age of twelve, to be able to use that language you've gained effectively will depend on how you hear it being used around you. Mm. And so somebody could, I mean, that's the whole point of going back to Bernstein's work, that in some families, children may never hear a reasoned discussion. So how can you expect them to have developed, they might know all the same words as somebody who can carry out a reasoned discussion, but because they've never heard one, how would they know how to do it? You know, it's, it's sort of obvious in a way that, that these things are never, we're born with very little pre-programmed knowledge. What we're born with is a pre-programmed capacity to acquire it in a wonderfully easy way. But we need to develop this, the skills of using this, this toolkit of language, but by experience and by guidance, by being guided by other people. Mm. So I'm, I'm sorry I can't comment on that distinction, but but I, I think I've, I'm a bit nervous about it because on first hearing, because I, I don't think many things, I don't think anything in the human brain of any complexity or subtlety or sophistication is, is already there. Uh, it, what we have is capacity to develop it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So we've been talking about different types of talk and you just referred to Basil Bernstein again, who, who spoke about the elaborated code and the restricted code. And you yourself and colleagues have also come up with a typology or a, a set of categorizations for talk. And these three categories are disputational talk, cumulative talk, and exploratory talk. How did you come up with these three categories? And, and could you tell us a little bit more about them? Yeah, it came up from a project called SLANT, uh, Spoken Language and New Technology, which uh, as the name gives it away rather, it was when computers in schools were a new technology. So it was back in the late 80s. And it was a project I did with people from the University of East Anglia and uh, as well as the Open University. And we were really looking at how children were being asked to use computers in schools. And because there were so few in those days, it was quite typical to sit two or three of them all together at, at the computer or, you know, and get them to do like maths activities or whatever, because that was one of the first things that kind of came around. Mm. And um, so we thought, oh, this is interesting. It actually wasn't designed at all for being a group-based 
bit of tech, but it can be used in that way. I mean, like most uses of technology education, they're kind of hand-me-downs from industry and science. You know, there's very little up till recently in way of technology that's been designed really for classrooms. It's usually, you know, techies design it for use in the industry or or somewhere else, and then they say, "Oh, teachers, you should be using this." You know. So, uh, but anyway, that's that's another story. But but we watch the children working together, and sometimes it was clear that, as I said earlier, that it was a waste of time. One child would dominate the whole conversation; they just hang on to the mouse desperately, wouldn't let the other speak. Or the one who knew most maths would do most of the talking. The other children would be distracted, looking around. Sometimes you get more than one child joining in a bit, but they didn't really make a lot of joint progress. And then you, just when you were giving up and thinking, well, this is a waste of time, like the people who don't like group work, yeah. you'd just cross one group that was like dynamite. You know, you could see, wow, look at this. And you could see children learning from each other, like one kid might be better at maths, but the way they had to justify what they were saying meant that the others eventually understood it too. And mm. often because they would ask questions of this person, I wouldn't be satisfied with half an answer. Or they'd make a suggestion which the other person, one of the others, would have to refute because they would say, well, no, that doesn't work. That can't work because. Mm. And you think it's absolutely wonderful. And so it wasn't very often you saw that. But when you did, you realized that it was the best thing and that it was a good way to use computers, even if they were a bit clumsy for that purpose. So we then decided to, to say, well, can we separate these different kind of uses of talk and we thought, well, let's just come up with some basic categories. Well, you know, the first kind uh, where they just, not, you know, where they're just really fighting over the computer and that, in a way, is an argument. But argument has a positive meaning too. What can we call it? Yeah, disputation. Let's call that disputational talk. And that's when people just sort of say, "I'm right, you're wrong. Well, you're stupid anyway." You know, and it's the sort of thing you see a lot in in the British House of Commons. You know, in Question Time and. You know, it's, it, nobody's given any ground. Nobody's really wanting to listen to the others. They're just wanting to stick to their point of view, and they will stick with it. And then you've got the one where they are sharing ideas, but they're not really criticizing them. They're just coming up with ideas. Like, you know, if it's about some a story that's on the computer or they were reading, well, I think it means this. Right, right. I think it means this. Oh, right, okay. Well, it might mean this. Right, yeah. And it's good because there is the sharing of ideas and it's filling the space there with interesting ideas, but there's no critical examination. They don't move on mm. anywhere. And the, the dynamic, really good stuff, uh, we call that cumulative talk because it accumulates ideas. It builds in that sense. And then we thought, well, what's this really good stuff? And Douglas Barnes, who I mentioned before, had already been doing stuff in classrooms and he'd come up with something that was a bit similar. It wasn't quite identical, but it was where people are thinking aloud and, and wanting to move on and, and exposing their ideas because they know they can do it in a relatively safe environment where people aren't going to shoot them down because everybody wants to get the best answer and where everybody's got enough space to do it. So we took up his name, which was, we try to think of other names for this good stuff, and in the United States, um, you know, Resnick and her colleagues have called it the same sort of thing. They've called it accountable talk because you make yourself accountable to other people. We didn't think of that name, we, but we took Douglas Barnes's one and, and called it exploratory talk. I'm not sure it necessarily was the best choice of overall to pick, but we, we got it. 
and it distinguished it. So we got three kinds of, of talk. I mean, I can say more about them if you want, but you know, is that, does that explain where they came from? <laughs> that explains where they come from. And I, and I would like to delve into them in a little bit more detail. So, I mean, fr- yeah. from the way they've been presented so far and the way I naturally thought about them, it seems yeah. like kind of exploratory talk sits at the top of the, the scale. You know, this is what we want to get to. This is where rational reasoning occurs. This is where groups yeah. work together, critique each other's ideas. But I was very interested by one particular chapter in your book. A large portion of it was focused on exploring different types of talk in different creative scenarios. And you mm. spoke about the valuable roles of cumulative talk and even disputational talk in various contexts. So I think for listeners, it's probably quite easy to see where exploratory talk is valuable. But where is cumulative talk valuable? I think it's valuable, perhaps it's valuable at the very beginning of a group's work or a group's activities, where you really, say say you've not met people before and, you know, say say you're going to have to work together, uh, as I used to do at the OU, we were on course teams, which had people from TV and academics and editors, sometimes uh, people from different disciplines. And at first, and we say, okay, we're going to write, a, you know, we're at this interdisciplinary course about language. Let's just start off by what any of us think they're interested in already. And that would be cumulative talk, perhaps for a whole meeting, where you were just saying what you thought you were interested in, why you come along and wanted to be part of it. And I would do the same. And you might ask, occasionally you might ask a question, but a lot of it would just be people sharing the ideas and letting them float up there in 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 a sort of you know in in a in what Rupert Wegrave calls a dialogic space you know mm-hmm. they're all up there they're not being taken apart and and broken down or anything they're just floating around but they are all there you might even write some of them on a whiteboard you know for the purposes of the meeting and they would just oh let's look at this then yeah these are all ideas we could use in this course and you don't go any further that's great but if you did that every meeting, you would never end up with a course. Mm. You, 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 you have to get somewhere, and you've got to start to say, okay, we've got all these ideas. All right, how many do we really think of these big ideas we could fit in one course? And they say, personally, might say, well, on past experience, I would say, honestly, this might sound weird, but I would say no more than 10. Okay, mm. can you explain that? Well, why? Yeah, I can give an example, and they would do that, and it would become exploratory talk. So cumulative talk, if they'd gone straight to taking the ideas apart, the minute you suggested you, as I started to criticize it, saying what's right, well, I don't, you, you would lose that first stage. So I do think it can be useful. Um, but it's, it's a phase. I mean, it's something you can use. Got it. And, and in fact, in reading this section, it reminded me a bit of an activity I did in a workshop where I participated in, in a workshop a few years ago. It was called the Yes And Activity. And it was the idea of it. Have you, have you come across it? I don't think so. Yeah, the idea of it was to um, basically promote brainstorming and, and real creativity. And so we were asked to do things like plan a party and we'd take it in turns to say something and the other person had to start their sentence with yes and. So you'd say, I think we should have a party uh, with cupcakes. And the other person would say, yes, and we should have pony rides as well. Yes, and. And yeah. so it's, yeah. So cumulative talk is very much to me about yes, and. And it makes sense yeah. that you were talking about it in that, in that kind of brainstorming or creative space. Yeah. Just as interestingly, the role or the valuable role of disputational talk, to, to me, I, I couldn't say, I'm, I'm very much a, when I have conversations, I try to keep them peaceful and kind of low yeah. key and, yeah. and calm and slow. 
and considered. So for me, the idea that disputational talk could have a helpful function was quite jarring. So do do you, do you feel that disputa- disputational talk does have a, a valuable function? I think it, it ha- I think it's pretty useless generally and should be avoided on most occasions. I think if it has a useful function, it's probably that it brings out in the open pretty clearly and obviously what some people's ideas are that they're very wedded to and they're they're not going to change, and that's probably worth knowing. I mean, again, I mentioned you know political disputes in the in the in the part in Parliament and so on. Uh, at least you know what they really stand for. Uh, they're not messing around. They're not being as you might or I might saying, well, uh, you know. I, you know, I see where you're coming from, and I've got slightly different. You know, they're just saying I think this. You know, yeah, we should stop immigration. You know, they're just saying, this. Um, and I'm not going to change my mind. Well, that, that's that's disputational, but at least you know what the person really thinks. So it's got that kind of limited value, and you might go away. It might make you go away and think, well, next time I'm dealing with something like that, I think I'll go about this differently because I it wasn't any good doing what we did because it was just a disputation. Mm. And so it can have a. I'm trying to be, you know, open to the possibility that it's got some value. But but most of the time, I think it's not a good idea, and all it does is entrench difference and doesn't reach collective solutions. Mm. Stepping back to cumulative talk for for a moment, I wanted to highlight a concept that you presented in the book that I found very illuminating, and that was the idea of the conceptual space of a conversation yeah, yeah. and managing this conceptual space. So to my understanding, the conceptual space is effectively how much you allow the topics or the discussion to spread out over time. And a large conceptual space would be a very wide ranging discussion, somewhat like this one is. However, allowing the conceptual space to grow often reduces efficiency because as you said, with the brainstorming phase, you kind of don't get anywhere in the end. You just have a nice time building up the ideas yeah. and walking around. And then when you narrow the conceptual space, that increases the efficiency and allows you to drill down to solutions, which is hopefully what we're going to do in this discussion as well when we talk about how to actually yeah, yeah. get group work yeah. work. Yeah. So how has this idea of the conceptual space influenced you and the way that you participate in or facilitate discussions, if in any way? Yeah, uh, well, I should say, first of all, it wasn't my idea or Carol Littleton's. We got it, as you know, probably remember from the book from a researcher of Cole Middup. I don't know his or her first name offhand, but um, I, I thought it was, as you say, a useful idea. And so we picked it up because it seemed very compatible with what what we were talking about. I think really what we are talking about is a bit like what I just mentioned with the kind of hypothetical course team meeting, that you might want a very broad conceptual space at the beginning to let all the ideas float and to get them all out there to make sure we've not missed any good ones. But then, you know, we've only got we've only got one course with ten TV programs, or and and so many units in it. You know, you know, we can't we can't talk as though we got the whole world and forever to do it. We've got to bring it down to something more efficient. Okay, let's okay, we're getting it down to something more efficient. Let's narrow the conceptual space for the TV programs and say, what's number one going to be there? You know, let's just focus on number one because that will set the scene for the whole series and for the course and everything. So that's the sort of way I think. And I think the way I would I would do it would, would be to self-consciously be aware of, of that, that sort of need to focus down 
And as a chair of a meeting, as I've had to do, as most senior academics have had to do for quite a lot of the time, I, I'm often conscious of that very deliberate notion of let's let the ideas come out now, but I'm not going to let this go on for too long because we've got to get a solution to this problem. So I think it is useful, enables you to move uh, in a way. I hadn't quite thought of it in the way till you suggested it in a way. It is a movement between more cumulative talk towards more exploratory talk. And I, I think it's a, a useful thing for people who are organizing meetings to have in mind that you, if you want to do that, you want to make sure you're not ruling out initial ideas and creative notions too early, but you can't let them float around forever. Otherwise, you've got things that never reach useful conclusions. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Another thing that really struck me in the book, and this is related to you know expanding or contracting conceptual spaces as well. Before you referred to Stephen Pinker's claim that language allows us to precisely communicate or con- precisely convey an idea from our mind to another's. Yep. However, in your book, you really went against that without referencing Pinker's view at all, but you wrote, as a cultural tool, language offers much more interesting possibilities because it is not always reliable for causing precise meanings to be generated in someone else's mind. Rather, what one person says acts as a catalyst for activating the thoughts of a listener. Yeah. Tell us more. Well, I can see how it would be useful if if, if we could always reliably put precise ideas from one mind to another, uh, because then obviously knowledge wouldn't get distorted by its transfer. But I think the virtue of it is that it, it provides a fertile kind of uh, resource for people to come up with new ideas. I, I could describe to you a novel I've read, and it could suggest different things to you because of other things you've read or your own life experience than it suggested to me, even though I'm talking about the same thing and I'm telling you about it. And in that way, you could then say something, well, that really reminds me of this. And I could say, oh, I'd never thought of that. And I would say something more about that. And then we would move on. So say if we were trying to be creative and come up with some good ideas for a film or something, then that might be exactly what we needed. Well, if you just said, yeah, I understand that now. Thank you. You know, it wouldn't really get anywhere. So it's because we have uh, our ideas are always contextualized by our past experience. Any words that that, that we use will have slightly different resonances for different people. And so they're not going to spark off the same neural connections. They're going to take us in different directions. And as long as we can talk about that, it means it makes quite a difference. I mean, there are things that, that you've said which I which really make me wonder rather than understand. I mean, you, you mentioned about at the beginning, uh, uh, I'm trying to think where you said it now, it might be in your email. Acknowledgement of country. That's right. Now, I was surprised by that because I don't think if I was doing what you were doing, I would start with anything like that. So that makes me really wonder. Now, that's great because although I understand the precise meaning of those particular words, I don't really know what they mean to you. Mm. And so that's a great starting point for me learning something which I wouldn't have learned otherwise. So the fact we know the precise meaning of the words, you know, acknowledgement, country, doesn't mean I understand what you mean. Yeah. But a conversation, we could sort that out in, in really interestingly if we, are, we were doing a different kind of discussion. 
So that's the kind of thing. And I, I think the essence of creativity and human creativity is that when you come together, you bring the vestiges and, and the weight of your past experience into that conversation. And it can, it can inform it in a way that, 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 that wouldn't be possible in any, any other species. And certainly, you know, it is only possible because of language. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And in fact, I've just made an interesting connection and it harks back to our discussion about evolution prior. In evolution, my understanding is that often a random mutation will happen to be more fitted to an environment than not having that mutation. And therefore, that mutation can be picked up and propagated and it actually becomes something that's useful. In the same way, perhaps we can draw a parallel with this ambiguity of language in that the ambiguity facilitates a mutation of the idea as it transfers from one person's mind to another. And then if, if that new idea is fitted to the environment or the conversation or the idea or the scenario, it gets picked up and propagated in the same way. So that's just an interesting thought that I had while we were having that discussion then. That is a good idea, yeah. And, and in fact, what you've, what you've said verifies the very thing, the, the thing we're talking about, doesn't mm. it? It's because we've had that discussion that, that that's emerged mm. in your mind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah great. Yeah. That's really, very, really good. Very meta. Um, <laughs> all right. We might narrow the conceptual space of this discussion a bit now, Neil, and, 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 and move into an actual instantiation of this kind of collaboration that you write about. Probably the most exciting narrative that I read about in your book, or the narrative that got me most excited, was when you wrote about your work with Benson soon. Oh, yeah. The wor work of Benson in terms of trying to foster and facilitate uh, better collaboration and discussions within a year 11 or a year... 12, I'm not sure, a high school level uh, physics class. Could you give us a bit of a brief outline of this experiment? Yeah, Benson is from Singapore, which is where he lives now. He's a pretty amazing guy, really, in lots of ways. He's designed software. He's set up universities in Nepal now. He's uh, written a book about how to learn well for high school students, which has sold very well. But one of the things he he also does is he, he really has a very good conception of how technology can be used in education. And I've done quite a bit of work related to technology in education, not, not only with Benson, but with people like Rupert Wegerith and Lynn Dawes and Paul Warwick and, uh, and Sarah Hennessy and so on. And the reason, one of the reasons is they're much more techie than me. <laughs> they can understand this stuff. I mean, you know, I, I, I can't pretend to be that kind of adept with it. And so I, what I've got is other ideas about how good communication works in classrooms and in education generally. And that's why Benson came to do a PhD with me. And so we really were capitalizing on those two, two kind of interests and capabilities that we, we had by going back to his his, his native country and and saying well let's see how it, how we can use this in a physics lesson so what what we really did was he got the all the students in 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 this uh, secondary school were about to take uh, an examination uh, uh, the equivalent one in britain is called the gcse general school you know certificate of education and they have a very similar one there so they take it when they're about 15 16 something like that and they always do a lot of revision for it just before they're going to do it, or every subject, but we happen to be looking at physics. And what 
they typically get is examples of questions to practice on. And what he suggested they did was they gave the students the questions individually, but they linked them up through the technology in the classroom so they were in pairs and so they could communicate, but only online. So they could collaborate in trying to solve these problems, but only by using the computer. And they initially didn't even know who the other student was, so they couldn't choose who their partner was. So then what the virtue of that was partly to see how well the computer worked for them to do that, but it was also because they'd have to be very explicit in what they said on it to make sure the other person understood. Mm. And they agreed that the teacher could read their logs to see what they'd said, you know, so to speak, on the computer. And so the idea was to bring the teacher into that loop because they could see how the students talked about these practice questions in trying to revise and solve them. And so you had an unusual bit of data there, which was students collaborating online about a subject, but also the teacher having access to it to be able to comment or make sense of it as a teacher. And so what we found was that it did work reasonably well for them to collaborate online. They didn't mind doing it. Some of the ones who'd not wanted to do it initially actually got quite into it and they found it useful. And what the teacher found was that when she looked at what they were saying to each other, she was both delighted and horrified. She would suddenly say, wow, that's great, Luke. They're going about this together in a really good way and he's shown him how to do that. But she'd also say, oh my God, look at these three lot here, you know, three pairs. I spent two lessons on that and they still don't understand, you know, uh, fiction or something. You know, it's awful. You know, I'm, oh, oh God, and the exam's only three weeks away. So then the teacher would say at the next lesson, you know, she'd say, well, you've had a lot of time to talk about these things together amongst you and I've seen what you've talked about. In this lesson, I know that at least 60% of you here don't understand friction at all. And so you're going to fail that exam unless you really listen now in this lesson. And so it was a non-discussion lesson. It was a direct instruction lesson that she mm. carefully And it was based on what they didn't understand. Mm. So it was a very targeted lesson. And they did very well. They did better in the exams than was predicted. So it, it worked really well because it... It, it, it not only did the, the, the method help them to, to discuss in an interesting way, but it gave the teacher access to knowledge about misunderstandings that they'd never have had otherwise, and they could target the teaching. So it was, it was, a, great, it was a great experiment, a great, you know, uh, it was a great idea, his initial idea, and it, it worked out very well, I think. Now, relating back to what you were saying before about teaching students how to effectively collaborate, you didn't just put laptops in front of the kids and say, go for it, did, did you? You actually set down some ground rules. Yeah. Well, we always do that. I mean, yeah, it, it, whether it's, um, this is, comes back to what I said at the very beginning of this discussion. You've got to teach children how to discuss. You've got to teach children how to think together, to interthink using language. You can't. Some of them might do it naturally well, but they won't always. And like most people don't. So you've got to teach them. And the simplest way of doing that, the most important aspect of it, I mean, Lindos and I are doing a, a, a workshop for teachers tomorrow, right? One of the things we'll be making more clear than anything else, I hope, is if you want group work to work well, set ground rules. Make sure that you expressly get the children to understand what 
makes a good discussion and how they can make it happen. So that's 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 what the ground rules are about. They're about ways of of making good discussions happen, really. Definitely, and and we'll delve into some ground rules in a bit more detail in a moment. But for now, th- this wasn't just an experiment where you just t- took one group of students, did you? You actually compared this group to two other controls, if I recall correctly. Yeah, that's right. Could you tell us a bit about the actual impact of, of this group learning approach? Well, the impact was that they got better results in the exams than the, than the students who'd just been left to go about things in the normal way. So in that sense, it validated this approach. It wouldn't be possible to pick apart how much of that improvement was due to them discussing and you know revising collaboratively in a structured way using the computer and how much was due to the benefits of the teacher seeing what they didn't understand. You've got a holistic intervention there and it would be very hard to separate the elements of yeah. it out. But certainly overall it worked and they got better results. So it's in that sense, it's certainly a, another bit of evidence in favour of the benefits of some sort of group work or collaborative work in you know in classrooms in conjunction as 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 is always the case, with some direct instruction from the teacher and some some discussion of other kinds. And especially kind of a formative assessment approach where the teacher was actively identifying misconceptions and targeting them. And if I recall correctly, there was also a part of the control group actually had private tutoring, so you use that as an additional comparison. And the, that's right. the computer group actually did even better than the group who had private tutoring. Yep, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, 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 worked, it worked pretty well. It really did. Looking through your work since your work with Benson Soong, I didn't see any other research projects that were similar to this. It seemed like a very promising kind of approach. I was wondering why since then you haven't done more work in this vein. I, I think mainly, I mean, Benson's moved on to do other things in higher education, and I've had other questions to answer. I mean, you know, I sometimes get asked why I haven't done something. I mean, sometimes people say, what, have you ever done anything? Shouldn't you have done something on, say, um, nonverbal communication in the classroom and how important that is or whatever? Or have you done anything with preschool children? And I just have to say, no, because I've only got one life and it's relatively short and very full already. And, and I've had enough to do, you know. Mm. And it's not that I don't think it's a promising line. It's just that I haven't had a, a, an obvious collaborator to pursue it with mm. that particular and I've moved on into looking at other things. So I'm all for somebody. I, mean, I agree it'd be great if somebody else took that up and pursued it a bit further. But it's probably not going to be me, you know, not because I don't think it's worth it, because, I've, you know, as I say, I've been doing other things. Got it. <laughs> Got it. Well, I think that brings us to the Thinking Together project. And we can delve a little bit more into how teachers yeah. listening can kind of get students thinking together more effectively. Could you just give us, to start off with, a brief outline about the scope and the remit of the Thinking Together project? Yeah, this was a project that really emerged through work with Rupert Wegerith and Lynn Dawes. Rupert was, at that point, my PhD student at the Open University. He's now a professor in the Faculty of Education at Cambridge as, as well. And he, he, again, like Benson, was somebody who was interested in technology. He come from a computer programming background. And he wanted to look at how technology could help students learn in classrooms. But it coincided to some extent with the project I mentioned earlier, the Slant Project, looking at children and new technology. 
And so it came along at the point when we realized that children working together with a computer could be really helpful rather than a, a bit of a problem because there weren't enough computers. But it was actually not a bad idea. So he, he got really very interested in trying to design things that were particularly good for getting children to collaborate in that environment. And I was interested in, by this time, in getting children to use more exploratory talk than we'd seen in, in, in the SLAMP project. Because although I said it was wonderful, there was very little of it, relatively speaking. Mm. So, so those two things came together. And, and Lynn Dawes, who was my wife, um, was at that time a primary teacher in a school. And she was interested in this as well. And Rupert did his fieldwork in her class. So she also became interested in how can what you're finding out be converted into teacher training kind of information, things that teachers can make practical sense of. You know, they don't just validate Vygotsky's theory. They actually say, what can you do next week on a Tuesday? You know. Yeah. So that the three of us really came up with this, and and the idea was really to get children to use language more effectively as 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 a toolkit for thinking, for reasoning, for for reasoning, for solving problems. And so that's why we came up with the name, the idea of thinking together, because it wasn't talking together, you know, it was actually thinking together. In Australia, actually, the book's got a different name, isn't it? It's called. It might be, I can't remember what it's called now. I've got it here somewhere. There's an Australian version of the book in which they changed the name to put something like uh, language in it. Yeah, I can't remember now. Okay. I can find it if you want to know. But anyway, we, we then designed this material and tried it out and found it worked pretty well. And then we went on in, through several projects, uh, were funded research projects, to develop this and apply it in science and apply it in other settings and, and just really sort of see if we could consolidate this this knowledge and a lot of what we found there and the, the results of it are in that book uh, dialogue and the development of children's thinking which is a, another book i wrote with karen littleton because she was involved in the latest stages of that as well so really it was a you know it was a way of trying to get children to use language as a reasoning tool for their own learning in the classroom that was the essence of it right it's really exciting project and lots of great outputs as well and i can re highly recommend to listeners to jump just google thinking together and jump onto the resources page because there are about 20 resources there pdfs that can be used you know downloaded for free and used in the classroom and that's kind of what i wanted to delve into a little bit now so i read through every pdf on the resources page and the three that i was probably most interested in was the three thinking together lessons and these are kind of the lessons yeah, yeah these are the lessons that you really designed to help teachers develop that culture of effective or exploratory talk amongst yeah. their students and also establish ground rules. Did you want to talk a little bit about what these lessons contain? Give, give listeners a bit of an idea of what's in them and what these lessons might look like if uh, teachers are, would like to roll them out in their own classrooms. Yeah. Well, I said the result of us, the three of us, trying to come up with some practical ideas, and Lynn in particular, designing them as lesson plans, you know, the practicalities of, of a teacher. Essentially, what what the lessons are meant to do is, is, first of all, raise students' awareness of how they use language already. Because talk is a sort of invisible stuff, isn't it? It's here and gone. It's not like writing uh, or written down things it's, it, or, 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 or even people's physical presence. And it can be taken for granted. And, and assume, you know, that everybody sort of knows all about it. 
and yet we're very unaware of how we use language most of the time, unless you are a, a language researcher of some kind. So we wanted the, the teacher, first of all, to just raise the children's awareness of talk, how they use it, what it can be used for, and how it can be used more effectively. So they had activities that would help them to do that. You'd get them to say, what makes a good discussion? You know, what, what makes a bad discussion? When do you think it worked well? Who do you like to talk with and why do you think they're, they're good to talk with and things? What do you think you can achieve through talk and so on? And then moving on in the next lesson to actually apply some of those ideas and say, well, let's get them down. We now know what a good discussion is and the teacher can shape, as the teacher's role is, shape that incipient knowledge and understanding that children are developing into something more, bring in the conceptual space, if you call it, bring it down a bit more, and say, well, right, let's agree that you've said what you think makes bad discussions, good discussions. Let's agree that when we're in our groups, we'll use these rules. And you get it down to a five, about five rules, you know, which are everybody, you know, you know they're, they're in the book and so on. Everybody gets a turn to speak. Everybody's ideas are treated with respect. You can ask questions if you want to know what somebody means. You uh, give reasons for your answers or your opinions so that you don't just insist, you, you try and explain. And you try and reach an agreement at the end because otherwise, you know, if you don't reach an agreement, then the group hasn't reached its con valid conclusion. And, and though they go up on the wall in the classroom, the teacher says, those are our talk rules or ground rules or guidelines, they call them what they like. And then the, in, she can remind the children at the beginning of any session where they're working together, let's remember our ground rules and even rehearse them a little bit with the kids. And then, so that happens by that, the second lesson. Then in the third one, you, you start to apply it to, to actual curriculum issues. You know, there are a number of approaches that use talking in, in classrooms very effectively and help children develop their awareness such as philosophy for children is one, and, and they get children to ask questions and become more self-conscious about talk. It, it tends to be sort of time out from the curriculum philosophy for children, and that can be fun and, and useful in itself. But what we wanted is a steady trajectory into applying what they learned in their maths, you know, English, geography, whatever. So we wanted to move fairly quickly into using the talk rules, the ground rules, to to get groups working on actual curriculum subjects because that's how it would work. So that's really what they're meant to do. They're, they're a sort of set up to, to, to lead into the, the, the students using them in, in their actual learning of the curriculum. And they're learning other things. They're learning how to be good group workers. You know, it's incidental. I mean, what Lynn often does, I think in those lessons, I'm not sure if it's explicit there, but what she typically advises teachers to do is especially at the beginning, is to set two lots of objectives for the lesson. It's it's kind of de rigueur in, in English education that you're meant to make explicit what your learning objectives or your you know are for the lesson, the students. So today we will understand how to measure the area of a triangle or today we will understand what the biggest rivers are in, in the world, you know. But what you would normally have is a talk objective as well. Today we will understand how to ask a good question. Or today, we will check that we shared ideas well, or something like this. So you, you can actually set sort of an objective that's to do with developing their skill in using talk, as well as the curriculum objective. Mm. At the end of that, you can say, how well did we do? Do you understand where the big rivers in the world are now? You know, and also, who asked a good question? Can you give me an example? You know, so I think that way, 
it's a case of getting the students themselves to understand why talk is useful and isn't a waste of time and why group work can be really good if you do it well. Totally. Now, after I read these lessons, I was, I was really excited and I wanted to have a crack at them in my own classroom. And, and the classroom I thought was most relevant was U11 physics. I was really keen to fall in the oh, footsteps yeah. of Benson soon. So maybe if you'll indulge me, I'd love to explain how I tried to use these resources. And perhaps, hopefully, for the benefit of some listeners, if they, they might get some ideas from kind of a concrete recount of how this happened in the classroom, and perhaps you can offer some suggestions or of, you know, whether it went, sounds like it went well or some suggestions of how to improve it or things like that. So I did this two days ago. It was the first class back after the holidays, and I had students come in. Yeah. It was a 90-minute lesson. And I, I, I split them into groups based upon achievement levels. So I put the highest achieving students in one group just because I wanted to, it to be less of a teacher-student kind of a dynamic and more of an equal level of achievement kind of a discussion. And I just, I didn't say much. I just gave them a worksheet with a bunch of questions on it. And the questions were getting students to design and then build electric circuits. So, for example, one of the electric circuits said, this circuit has two light bulbs and two switches. When you turn one switch on, one of the light bulbs turns on. When you turn the other light switch on, both of the bulbs turns on, right? So, and they were in groups and, and the instructions just basically said, design your circuit as a group and draw a circuit diagram first before you touch any of the equipment, then build the circuit with the power off, then check, your, check it by turning the power on, right? And I just said, I said, our goal for this lesson, I didn't talk about the talk goal. I kept it hidden for the moment. I just said, the goal for this lesson is to get better at designing circuits, go. And I just let them go for 30 seconds and I walked around and I observed the talk and I saw lots of disputational talk. I saw lots of students dominate. I saw a few groups where one student was dominating and a couple of students were sitting yeah, yeah. silently. And then at the 30-minute mark of this 90-minute lesson, I said, okay, everyone return to your desk, get out a pen. And I gave them a sheet with 11 criteria on it for group work. And I got them to rate their group as an individual to rate their group from zero to five on each of them. So these were things like you could tell that we were listening to each other because we were facing the speaker whilst they were speaking. And we took turns to speak and didn't speak over each other. Talk turns were shared around the group without any one member dominating the conversation and so on. And these were drawn from your, from your work and the Thinking Together resources. As, and I added some, own that, some of my own as well. I then got the groups together and got them to agree on the ratings for their group and give themselves like a percentage score. And then I revealed that the lesson had an additional goal, which was to help them to talk better together. And I have a scripted, I had, I can't, I'd actually scripted that and I've, I put that on my blog if anyone, any listeners are interested in that. And then I asked the groups, so this was following what, what you've done as well, to pick four of the criteria that I had offered that they thought were most important to turn them from criteria into ground rules and then to add two of their own. So that's very, very similar to your traffic lights approach to, yeah, to yeah. picking things. And then as a group, we amalgamated those, all those ground rules and found out where there was overlap, brought them into one. And so we end up with the ground rules. I'll just read a couple of them out. We plan our design before going through with it. We treat others' opinions with respect. We're mindful of when others are speaking and don't speak over them. Consult the group and make sure everyone agrees before doing anything. Group members should give reasons for their ideas and ask each other why and how questions. Everyone must do the same amount of talking, which which I don't totally agree with, but that's the way that they wanted to represent it and I didn't want to kind of override. I wanted to give them ownership of it. And, and one that I didn't see in your research but I thought was good as well was have fun. <laughs> yeah. So we had those ones. And then so that took another 30 minutes. We had 30 minutes of 90 minutes left and left. 
and I got and I let them jump back into it. And I was actually, you know, my sock had my socks totally blown off, Neil. It was amazing <laughs> to yeah, it was really. And I didn't I didn't even expect it. I was I was a bit like, oh, I'll give this a go. You know, I'm interviewing Neil in two days' time. I better have a crack at it. But really, the way that they collaborated together, and I just I would go around and sit with a group for about two minutes and move to the other. Yeah. And yeah. some of the groups were working well beforehand, but the ones, you know, I got one group in my mind in particular where one student was just talking the whole time at the start, and they were doing, you know, they weren't making any progress because this loud student also wasn't particularly competent at building electric circuits. Yeah. You know, he was actively asking the other students, "What do you think?" and "Do you agree?" And right. and it was great to see, but you know the the real proof was how much more quickly they actually completed the circuit. So I think there were eight circuits, and before in the first thirty minutes, most groups only completed one or two. Yeah, yeah. But in the second, we had groups completing three or four, and they were actually harder than the first ones because the circuits yeah. got trickier. And so for me, that that was amazing. And and you know we did a plenary in the last five minutes. And I said, you know, please share your thoughts. You know, what impact did the group rule, the ground rules have? And I've, in the blog post that I've already posted up, I've got the students' comments in that. But yeah, that were just really positive and, and really excited about it. So it was, it was really great. And, and it was, a, and also then I printed them out on A3 and I stuck them around the classroom after the class had finished. And, you know, this was actually the first time I've ever put posters up in a classroom. So it's nice that I was excited enough to do that. So yeah, I just I just wanted to share that story with you, the positive benefit that reading your work has had on my classroom already. And I plan to build on this in future, and also to hopefully that concrete example, which I've detailed more in a blog post, can help help listeners as well. But yeah, did you have any thoughts or comments on that? Well, I think I'm delighted that it worked. I'm not surprised it worked. I'm I'm glad it worked as quickly as it did because I've sometimes seen it take two or three lessons of trying the ground rules before you see that effect. But perhaps and that's typically with younger children. So it might be that these older kids can kind of more quickly get to the point. But mm. I'm very glad to hear it. It sounds great. I'm very glad that you found it useful. Obviously, that's what I want more than anything, you know. So that's brilliant. Thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah, it was great. All right, coming back to something we were talking about before, you mentioned the importance of and the role of consensus. Yes, And I just wanted to share a little, and you know, this relates back to one of the ground rules that my group developed, which was we did our very, very best. Oh, sorry. This was a criteria that I set for the students, which was we did our very, very best to all agree on our design before we did anything. Yeah. But you quoted Christine Howe yeah. in relation to her work of inquiry activities in science. And in your book, you write, it was found that children obtained significantly better results on these delayed tests of learning and understanding when they were asked to seek agreement on their predictions before testing them. Moreover, and this was the interesting part to me, it did not seem to matter whether agreement was actually reached or if contrasting views were reconciled. What was important was that seeking agreement was a feature of their group discussion. Why do you think this instruction to seek agreement was so impactful? Well, yeah, Christine Howe, I've worked with her quite a lot, but this is work she did before. It's starting to rain hard here. I don't know if you can hear it, but I hope it doesn't create too much of a sound. This is England, after all, you know. So, oh, uh, good. Oh, good. She has her own ideas about this, and we've talked about it quite a bit, and that's, I think this is a, a kind of combination of what, what she and I think about it. It's that if you're asked to agree by the end of an activity, on an answer that the group has to be accountable for, then you'll go that little bit further in trying to sort out whether you really do agree. Because, okay, well, you know, 
I don't agree, but you can stand up and say what you think, and I won't care. But when you know it's the group, and it has to be, you'll say, well, I can't really agree with that, because I still think you've not convinced me, or something like this. So you go that little bit further than if you can just say, we'll agree to differ, which is mm -hmm. what teachers say. Can't we just let them agree to differ? Well, no, because they'll give up too easily. Yeah. Her explanation as well is that, that if you hear arguments that are for and against certain points of view or like uh, and for an idea you initially had that then you realize is not perhaps quite right, it kind of primes your mind and you go away. It's kind of still going on in the back of your mind. And that kind of activity consolidates the knowledge that you get. It's more firmly embedded. So it was when she went back several months later, she found it was the children who did agreed or had tried to agree who remembered best as well what they'd learned because it had just kind of really embedded it more clearly in their head as a result of of the discussion and the argumentation that had been part of it and we had a nice example on a, a video when we were a project we were doing with with her where we were looking at math classes secondary maths and the teacher at the end of one lesson they were doing it on probabilities and using inheritance as their kind of basis. And they got these different ideas from kids about what will be the correct answer for what would be inherited, what were the probabilities of a feature being inherited. And she said, right, I'm not going to solve that now. We'll leave that to the next lesson. Now, in some, some school inspectors in the UK have been very critical of teachers leaving things hanging like that. They said, you should always tie it down, otherwise it's... But what we did was, which she left it, that she said, well, we'll open the next lesson. As we were starting to record the next lesson a couple of days later, and the children were coming in, the pupils were coming in, we already were recording. And on the recording, these two girls come in, one of them says, you know, since that last lesson, I've been really thinking about this, and I think what Sharon said is probably right, you know. And, and that was just as they were passing. So, I mean, I think what it does is it just opens up the hooks in your mind to. To, to these new ideas in a way that they, you know, and they, they're going to be there and, and, and they're going to be considered more than if you just heard them or the teacher said, here's the answers, learn them all. You know, it kind of does something more dynamic cognitively. Yeah, I think it works. That's lovely. So I think it, I think it really makes a difference. Yeah. Mm. Now that's the value of kind of seeking consensus, but I guess consensus gone a bit too far and we start to move into the dangers of something like groupthink, for example. And so in your book, you describe groupthink as the tendency of members of well-established autonomous groups to rely entirely on each other's views and ignore any dissent or criticism from outside their immediate circle. So have you seen groupthink in your career, for example, or in your life? I'd be curious if you've got any examples. But similarly, what are some of the rules or cultures that foster groupthink? Yeah, in fact, I was talking to Lynn about this before, about what examples have we seen. And the one we thought of that, that probably was as strong as any example was we were involved here in a sort of, uh, in the local area, in a sort of protest group against the development of some of the environment down near the river where they, they wanted to build some houses. So we were members of a group that were trying to oppose this. And at one point, we went along to a council meeting where we were, we were told we could express our views and say why we thought it shouldn't happen. And we got there, and various members of our group were asked to say what they thought. And the councillors then began to discuss it in front of us. And it seemed very clear that 
nothing we said had made any impact because they never mentioned anything we said. Mm. They would only refer to things, as the Honourable Member said in the last meeting, it's vital that we build 25 houses and so on. It's clear from what we've already seen in previous meetings that the environmental impact will be very limited and so on. We agreed already that there should be so much social housing. Uh, and it was clear that all they were doing was consolidating the group's ideas. Mm. It was a sham in terms of, 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 a, of, of an open meeting. Mm. And we were all cross about it. And But it, we could probably understand it better than some other people because you could see that as a defensive strategy, they'd retreated into groupthink. And all they were doing was bolstering each other's established points of view and rejecting ideas that were coming from outside from a group that they saw was, I mean, not their enemies, but certainly their opponents in some way. So I think that's the most real example I can think of. Got it. Now, that's interesting because that's, to me, that seems like groupthink used as a strategy, whereas I, I, I would have thought that groupthink is at its most insidious when the subjects of the groupthink are actually unaware of the fact that it's occurring. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. Um, and the examples we mentioned in the book, of course, where people have been had the privilege of, of looking at, at recordings or transcripts of, of groups working in camera, you know, like, working out of, out of sight of, of, uh, of observers or opponents. Mm. They mentioned, uh, you know, group, uh, government decisions made by committees. And I agree, uh, in that occasion, it, may, uh, it was almost like you say, a strategic defence though it had the same function. Mm. Right, I, th I think I, I, I've not been so aware of being, it may be because working in universities, this sort of thing doesn't happen so much, I don't know. But I've not been very aware of being in a meeting and that being the, operate, the, you know, the kind of way of operating in the meeting I was in. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, because I, I mean, as I was reading this section, and I've thought about groupthink before, but um, I imagine, you know, a group of school leadership people in a, in a meeting trying to plan some approach to literacy instruction or something, and they've they've yeah. they've read maybe one one book on it, and they're like all just thinking about this one book and how this is going to be the holy grail or something like this. So, if that is a danger, I mean, what can be done to try to mitigate against the the potentiality of of groupthink occurring occurring in your school or institution? I think it's like with any other ways of improving the quality of talk. I think it's a case of bringing out into the open kind of developing an awareness amongst the people in the group of what they're trying to achieve and how it can best be achieved so that they sort of have to say, look, let's just start off by saying any relevant information at this stage should be shared. Mm. I don't want, you know, it, it shouldn't be that only the important people in the, in the group say what they think is important or what they think they know. We want everybody to feel they're not under threat if they offer their own opinions. It's a conceptual spacing again. At this stage, we want to hear everything uh, because we might miss something that because it's not being said by the most important person. So you actually bring out the whole nature, the dynamic of the group and get them to raise their awareness of it and say, do we all agree we want the best solution, not necessarily the one that the important people in the group have already thought of. Mm. And if you get people to agree that, then, then you're actually moving away from it. And you can, you, you know, it's worth people actually discussing the phenomenon of groupthink, saying it's been shown, you know, that it, it too often happens that, you know, the people with authority, their voices get heard all the time and 
and the other people don't or you know people feel on the you know, let, let's make sure we're not one of those groups you know yeah that's great naming it yeah and then move on to the ground rules kind of thing of the positive ground rules and saying what what we think we should do uh, to make sure it you know it works well mm. now in relation to counteracting group think yeah. i interviewed dylan william a short time ago and yeah. In his professional development resources regarding helping schools to embed formative assessment and and having meetings within professional learning teams, he has introduced, and based upon your work, he actually cites your work in the creation of this, he's invented the role of the challenger into these professional learning community teams, someone whose job it is to play devil's advocate and to explicitly ask questions like, well, how is that formative assessment? Things like that. What What's your view of, of this strategy to mitigate against groupthink? I think it sounds a good idea. Again, I think it's based on the idea that you will you will you will design your group to be most effective. And and if you realise the person's being asked to do that, I think it could work very well. I, I hadn't thought of it myself, but I think it sounds very sensible. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of ways. I'm sure beyond the ones we've suggested that people can. Uh, improve the quality of the decision making and the the creative thinking as a group, uh, and they're all based on the sort of an awareness issue. You know, the per- everybody would know that this person, I guess, is is being the devil's advocate, and so it, it, their role is explicit. So they're not nobody will think they're being nasty or difficult mm. because everybody knows this is a functional role, and that's different than if they just happen to be like that. Yep. Uh, it might be taken so well if they thought people were just being awkward. Yep. So I think a lot of it's based on this this self-awareness, you know. It's a kind of self-regulation thing at a group level, you know, which, you know, is, 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 is a good idea. As you put it earlier, it's a meta kind of awareness, isn't it? Mm. Now, so that's one tool that can be used in groups, the, the challenger. Another tool that was presented on the Thinking Together resources page was the idea of this talk tally. And what I saw was different types of different ways of constructively participating in talk. And from what I could gather, the idea was for students to kind of tally up how well they've done this. I was a bit worried when I read this because I thought, sure, this is just going to distract students from from the discussion if they're trying to count how many times someone says yes because. Could you tell yeah. us, give us a bit more info about this talk tally idea? Yeah, in fact, the people at School 21 or the Charity Voice 21 with whom we do a lot a lot of work, I don't know if you've seen their website. But yeah, it's well yeah I have. They, in fact, call this activity Talk Detective, which is a nice name for it. And it's not that everybody has to do it. What you do is you say, okay, in this lesson, I'm going to pick six people and they're going to be the talk detectives. Oh, so they cool. won't group for this lesson. They'll just go around and they'll observe different groups. You observe groups A, B, and C. You observe groups C. And, that, and at the end, they will share what they found. Mm. So it's quite deliberate. and It gives them a sort of researcher-type role, which is separate from what the group's doing. So hopefully the groups won't be distracted. Though if the groups are distracted in the sense that they think we'd better be very careful to follow the ground rules, that's probably not a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> it might work better as a result. So that's how it works. Okay. That No, that makes sense to kind of division of labor there. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, we might jump into a couple of Twitter questions now because I think it's a good, yeah. good pause in the interview for that. And you may feel like you've answered some of these already, but we'll, we'll give it a crack. So, Sean McHugh asks, I'd love it if you could ask Neil to talk about how threaded conversations online 
facilitate or undermine interthinking or otherwise. And I'll combine that with Brent Salmon's question, which is, is group work likely to be as effective online, for example, using a Google Doc, or is it better slash necessary to be face-to-face? Yeah, there's 30 conversations online. There's certainly You can certainly use them. Again, somebody like Rupert Wegener has done more direct work on this than me, but the 30 conversations online can be effective for interthinking if people are aware of the limitations of, of that kind of medium. If you and I and somebody else were talking together now, it would be quite clear when you'd said something in relation to what I'd said because it would come straight after it and the next person, the person would have heard those two things. When things are online, it's sometimes things can get a bit jumbled. So you might mm. put up a Twitter thing and I only reply to it tomorrow. But in the meantime, somebody's replied to it already. But I don't take account of what they've replied to. I just reply to what you said first, mm. which isn't like a real conversation at all. So I think it's got risk. And as long as people are aware of the risks, they can probably be transcended because like any other medium, like telephones, you know, people manage without nonverbal communication perfectly well on the phone. You know, gestures and things are irrelevant, but they manage. Mm. And I think if people are aware online of the risks. Uh, the other thing I think with on with, I think online discussions. I'm very wary of getting involved in. I mean, I would never, as a say, say as a manager of people, I would never try and resolve a disputation or a or a or a, a, a disagreement through email or an online discussion because i think you you can be much less aware of the tone of of the person's contribution mm. you can't tell as easily whether they're cross or not whether they're saying this in a way that that really is very heartfelt or it's just rather off the cuff and i think that they can all lead to misunderstanding so i, I always resist trying to do it that way so i i, I think given the realities of people being so far apart and having different time frames and everything. It's great that people use these medium. And I do think it can be used effectively. And you can have an exploratory talk kind of discussion online. But I think you've got to be wary of the traps of it and the other limitations of it and how they're different. I mean, the advantages are, I mean, I'm responding to everything you say now off the cuff. And as you suggested at the beginning, I might listen to it later and think, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I could have said this. If I was replying to you on an online thing, to your questions, I would probably leave it, come back, and, oh, no, that's not quite right. So you've got advantages as well. You can be very precise in what you say in a way you're less likely. So it's got pros and cons. So it's just, you know, different medium of the different affordances, I'll say. Different media of different affordances, I think, is the best way to think of it. Perfect. Rob Monk asks, what are your top three tips for managing students who are off task in group work? Well, the first top tip is make sure you set ground rules and that everybody in the class agrees they will agree to them. Because if students, for example, in a group, are, if one student in a group is, is playing up and not taking part, the other kids will say, Miss, Tom's not following the ground rules. You know, they will, they will enforce it themselves. I think that's one of the things. We've seen in some of our studies Children who were really considered problematic. I can think of two kids in particular, a boy and a girl, who were considered really problematic in the class for their behavior and, and not taking part. And once they'd done the ground rules kind of lessons and introduced them in the way you did with those students, those two children were both transformed. I mean, one of them actually became almost like 
the perfect chairperson of a group saying, right, have we all asked a question? Have we all? I think it was because, as I said at the early, much earlier on, some children have never heard a, a reasoned discussion at home. So how would they know how to do it? And the light can go on. They can sort of say, wow, I see how this works now. You know, I can make sense of it. I can do it. And I, I think that's that's one of the, the, the top tips. I mean, there'll be others. I'm I'm not I, You know, there are lots of reasons for difficult behaviour which are not directly to do with talk. And I wouldn't pretend to be an expert on those things. But that's certainly one thing I would say does work. And you've you've found yourself it improves students' participation. Mm. That's a great point. And what you were talking about there was really making that thinking visible or making the implicit rules of discussion explicit for these students and giving them the tools to participate uh, in the way that students who have already been enculturated into that kind of those discourses can do. Exactly. It, it fits in with this notion, which I think you mentioned in your notes, is now quite fashionable, this notion of self-regulation. And it's, it's giving them the, an extra way of being, you know, be able to operate on this meta level and self-regulate their own activity. Mm. So Olivier Elzingre, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, asks or says, I'd love to know how interlanguage differs, or interthinking, I assume, differs when students speak other first languages and what Neil thinks interlanguage would look like if in a foreign language class. I assume she means interthinking. That would be my assumption. Interlanguage is a different concept, isn't yep. it, which yep. I know well. But, yeah, well, we've, we've done quite a lot of work with, with students who are using a second language to interthink, to work in groups. There's a quite a, a very popular way of teaching a second language, such as English, in, in Europe and other places now called CLIL, which is content-linked instruction in language, meaning that you get taught math through English. You don't just have an English lesson and then in Spanish do maths. You actually get taught through maths. And certainly we've, we've done some workshops for teachers and work with Cambridge University Press on, on their course for, for primary teachers, which is showing how you can build these kind of things into those kind of lessons. And w- one of the, the good things about doing it is if you do build these kind of activities into a language lesson, you actually give a bit more purpose to the lesson. It's not just a case of learning the French vocabulary. It's actually you're trying to use French to have a discussion or an argument. Mm. And that seems to help in some ways. Yeah, so I think it works very well. The one thing I would say is that you've got to be sensitive in different parts of the world to the different cultural norms that apply in discussions. And in different countries, although the, you know the ground rules will work anywhere, you can't expect students in some cultures to be quite so willing to disagree, or, or perhaps as in others. Mm, okay, that makes sense. So I think that that's you know teachers have to be sensitive to to those kind of variation with the trying to use this approach, but I'm sure they would be. Yeah. Okay. And the final Twitter question, and you may feel like you responded to this already. It's quite similar to a previous one, but this is from at investigate all. Barriers such yep. as behavior concerns restricted the implementation of talk in secondary schools or can restrict, I assume. How can SLT slash teachers be better prepared and supported to implement a greater focus on talk if research shows this pedagogy is effective, why has it not been harnessed? I think whole school approach is the only way really to do it, having on past experience and what other people have found. I think if you've got one teacher trying to make a rich talk environment in the classroom and all the other people around them are not, I think they'll it probably won't work, especially in a secondary school where 
students are moving between teachers. So I think it has to be a whole school approach. I think the staff themselves have got to be convinced that talk used in a structured and careful way is a tool for learning. That, as I think you become <laughs> convinced. And, and that, that, that's vital. I think unless everybody thinks that, it's not going to work. And so they've got to sort of try some things out and, and see that they like the, trying the ground rules and see if group work then works or not in their classroom. So I think it is vital that it's a whole school approach and that the whole staff buy into it. Otherwise, it's likely to just be a temporary novelty and, and die out. I think the reason it hasn't happened already, as I've said earlier, because of some assumptions about, about talk, which are sort of false. One is that if children are talking in class, it must be, they must be wasting their time and not focusing on things. And the only way they'll learn is to sit and listen. So it's kind of this mistaken notion of traditional ways are the only way to get children to learn. And another reason, I think, is that there's a tendency in education debates for people to take polarized positions yep. and for people to say, you know, oh, I think direct instruction is the best way for children to be taught. That means group work's a waste of time. Or some other people say, well, it's up, children will only really get involved and be enthusiastic about learning if they set the agenda and if they have a chance to discuss it and talk amongst themselves, and I should keep out of the way. Both of those positions are ridiculous. What you really want is a balanced position. I mean, where people are instructing and where people are allowing proper dialogue to take place too. We know from the proper research that's been done, a large scale research now that we've done recently, me and Christine Howe and Sarah Hennessy, Robin Alexander and Frank Hartman and, and co have done in York. We know that it's the balance that really matters. And you really want people to be using direct instruction when it's required and to get some real dialogue going when that's going to help most as well. So, makes, you know. makes sense. And, and I mean, I think another thing is that just facilitating these kind of group discussions, it's really hard if you don't have the tools to get it happening. You know, I'm obviously someone who values talk as a learning medium because I run an education podcast <laughs> where the purpose is to try to use talk to learn stuff. And yet it's taken me this long, you know, a couple of years since I first got interested to actually feel like I've had success yeah in creating yeah. this kind of environment. And that's despite, you know, after my first interview with James Mannion about two years ago, and he really suggested the value of the philosophy for children approach, which you also alluded yeah. to this evening. I went and I did the philosophy for children training, and I oh. still didn't feel like I could, I didn't feel like I had the practical skills required to get effective oh. conversations going in my year 11 physics class. And so it wasn't until I came across another set of tools and tried them out, which takes, you know, quite a bit of perseverance for a teacher. To get to the point where finally you have a kind of a bit of an aha moment. So yeah. hopefully, hopefully this discussion is kind of bringing these, these thinking together tools to other teachers as well. And hopefully we, this is part of that change to help, help us see a bit more of a balanced approach to instruction, as you mentioned just then. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we've been talking a lot about how talk's useful for learning and, and learning physics or learning other subjects. And, and it certainly is. But I think the other thing that I increasingly think we, we ought to make a point of, of stating is that children need to be need to be taught how to use talk because that's one of the life skills that's going to be most valuable for them 100 percent. just as they have to you know they should be taught mathematics and they should be taught how to write and read well but they need to be taught how to talk and and in this in certainly in the uk you've got the irony that that the children who probably most need that 
have come from some socially deprived backgrounds are the least likely to get it, while the children, the children who go to these elite private schools in the UK, known as public schools, as you probably know, they're all the ones who get taught how to use, how to give speeches, how to, how to explain, how to argue and debate. And, of course, they're the ones who end up running the country, you know, and telling the other yeah. ones what to so yeah, I really think it's a social justice issue as well that you know oracy, as you will put it, should be alongside literacy in the classroom, and and we should be teaching children how to take control of their lives through the effective use of talk, and not leave it to the the, the posh people to to just teach their kids to do it. So I you know I think there's as well as talk for learning, I think there's learning about talk yep. has to be an important thing as well. Yeah. You spoke before about the importance of whole school approaches. Just briefly, in terms of your work in supporting schools to bring talk to the fore, oracy, dialogue, these kinds of things, are there any kind of real key factors that you've found schools have to get these things right for it to really take off in the school? And if they don't, you know, things are likely to fall in their face. Yeah, there's two aspects to it, really. One is, as I say, recognising that uh, we've talked about it most, which is that you should harness the power of group work, but that needs a bit of special attention, otherwise it won't work. That's one of the things that's vital. And you, people, The other one is for teachers to realise themselves that they, so much of it depends on their effective use of talk. In other words, I mean, talk is the main tool of a teacher's trade. And yet I know a lot of teacher training courses that don't really focus on how they use talk. We do at Cambridge. But I, I know for a fact that that isn't the case everywhere. And increasingly in the UK, there's been this idea from the government that teachers don't really need to be trained anyway. They can just go in the class and do it. And and that's crazy. I mean, you wouldn't let a surgeon in to have a go at appendicitis, taking appendix out if they weren't trained for several. And and I, I think that the, the thing the, that schools need to realise is they need to review the, the way the teachers themselves, and I include myself as a teacher, we, we need to be self-conscious about how we are using talk in our classrooms and are we using it to the best effect? Are we asking the right kind of questions? Are we setting up the right kinds of opportunities for discussion and also for direct instruction? And, and do they feed into each other? And, you know, and, and the only way is to really review what you do is to listen to what you do yourself, really, which is not rather painful. I hate hearing myself in that way. But, you know, I think unless... You've got these two sides of the coin, you know, the t development of the children's ability to use talk and also the development of the teacher's skills in using talk in the classroom, then it won't work. Mm. I'd like to move now to the kind of connection between talk and thinking. Something that's been plaguing me over the last few years is it's very hard to see what's going on in my students' heads and and what kind of thought processes are actually occurring when they're trying to work something out or talk themselves through a problem or something like that. I know what I do, you know, and that makes sense, but I've struggled to kind of, one, work out what they do and two, get them to take on more effective kind of internal dialogues. In your book, especially towards the end, you talk about the role of moving from co-regulation to self-regulation and kind of metacognition. Could you tell us a little bit about that now? Well, this again comes back to a basic idea of Vygotsky's that I mentioned earlier, which is that it's through social experience shapes the, the mental capabilities of children to a significant extent, not completely, of course. And the idea being that if you think what an educated person does is they, 
they're able to have a reasoned discussion in their own head, aren't they? On the one hand, this, on the other hand, that, mm-hmm. you know, if you're something, you know. And so I think what, what we're really saying is that if you learn how to, as a group, reason by having a re- regulated, a well-regulated and reasoned argument, you can, as Vygotsky would put it, you internalize that so that you can then have a reasoned and well-regulated argument in your own head, which is one of the aims of philosophy for children. I mean, that's one mm-hmm. of its aims, is to create philosophers. That's what Matthew Lippmann wanted to do, was children can become philosophers. So it, it's really that idea that you a natural way, it's kind of just harnessing and refining that natural process of children's early experience, which is that from the social interactions they have, you're building mental or cognitive structures mental ways of of actually processing your experience and making sense of the world yeah 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 final question i wanted to ask before we go into the closing questions relates back to something you were talking about before before you you mentioned that you have sat in meetings where it seemed like the people around you didn't didn't know how to you know, effectively engage in talk. And I can, you know, that's definitely happened to me multiple times throughout my life as well. And probably I was one of them at at various stages too. But do you have any advice to teachers out there who feel like maybe some of their colleagues don't really know how to effectively engage in exploratory talk or they're a leader and they want to facilitate this for their staff or they're a staff member and they don't feel like their principal or leaders do this very well? How do you, you know, I feel comfortable running a class for my year 11 students to teach them how to talk, but do you have any advice to people about how to get more effective talk going amongst peers? Well, we did a, I've got one practical sort of example, which is some research that we did with Pete Dudley, who you mentioned, I think, in some of your notes, who's a guy who's been very much, one of my colleagues at Cambridge, been very much involved in the increased use of this approach called lesson study yes. in, in the UK, where teachers work together to review and plan their lessons, yeah, which is, is a, an approach that's come from Japan and is used in China and some other places, mm-hmm. but is in fact used in a lot of places now. And what we did there with these teachers in Camden was we, they, we got them to video their own discussions when they were reviewing and planning lessons, which they typically do in groups of three. It would sometimes be a secondary teacher and two primary teachers. They'd each look at each other's lessons and then talk about them and plan new ones. So they'd take turns to be the kind of the teacher who was the subject of the of the discussion. So it kind of was fair overall. You didn't just get one person mm-hmm. doing it. And what we found was we could analyze these discussions because they kindly sent us the tapes. And we had quite a lot of teachers involved. And what we then were able to do was get them to rate how effective they thought their discussions had been, how useful they thought they'd been Mm. for their teaching and their planning. And what we found was that the ones who typically rated their discussions as the most useful were the ones in which we'd noticed the talk was characteristic of exploratory talk. Mm -hmm. In other words, where it was, the kind of talk that the nearest kind of description of it would be exploratory, they were the ones who they came out thinking, wow, that was a really useful discussion and so on. So what we did was show this to all these teachers in a session. And uh, we, we weren't able to show the bad ones because you can't, you know, it's a bit ethically dodgy to show something and say, this is rubbish. But we were able to show the good ones. And we could make the point that these were good discussions and everybody rated them. And we said, if you find your discussions weren't feeling very useful, 
have a think about whether it's because they weren't this kind at all. And so in that sense, we try to raise all the Camden teachers' awareness of how they use talk when they're in discussions with colleagues. Mm. And they, they said they find this very useful. So that's one practical, if not particularly easy way of getting mm. teachers to realize it and to improve the quality of it. And I guess within a school, you could, you could do something like that. You could say, let's review what we've done. I think at the basic level, you do what I'll be doing with the teachers in the session tomorrow and just say to them, you know, you've been in lots of discussions. What makes a good discussion? What makes a, a bad discussion? And they, they will tell you. And, and you can say, well, you know, let's think when you're looking at the children, but look at yourselves as well. How can you maximize the good points and avoid the bad ones? Mm. Do you come back to the ground rules idea? So with those teachers who were doing the lesson study and who you explicitly show the recordings of the clips in, in conjunction with yeah. Dudley's work, did you actually then yeah. progress to the stage of talking about ground rules? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, oh, so you did. So you, and then you set out ground rules. You wrote them on a whiteboard or typed them up or something and then yeah, said, this yeah. is what makes, so let's think about these. So, yeah, okay. So you went that far. Yeah, yeah I mean, we asked those teachers in. The, I mean, some of the feedback we got from the sessions consisted of, if you like, that kind of info. So they say, why did you find this session useful? Because I thought my ideas were really listened to and mm. and anything that was criticized was that was, was sensible. Oh, why didn't you find this lesson? Well, because I didn't think they really ever really gave me a chance to say what I thought. You know, it kind of comes out of the feedback. Mm. So we were able to share that. Mm. And everybody found it, you know, useful, I think. We weren't telling them what to do. But they, were, they were telling us what they'd found useful. And we were saying, well, do you think you can refine this to make it useful for everyone? That's great. And I guess in a school context, one way to explicitly bring up talk in these ground rules and stuff would be to almost take a whole school approach to this kind of thing and say this is what we're going to teach our students to do therefore let's work through this ourselves through the resources yeah. ourselves and try it out and then you know maybe you get some secondary benefits there yeah. in terms of how you collaborate as a group yeah that sounds right all right closing questions now neil what advice would you give to your first year researcher self oh I think it, I think it would be, yeah. I, I suppose it would be um, stick with it, even though it feels very lonely at times when you're a PhD student, and don't give up. I, I know that's one of the hardest things. If you're a social science or arts PhD student, you're not part of a lab or a team, and you you can get very lonely. Mm. And although I had some good friends, there wasn't really anybody else doing any research that was just like mine. I had nobody to talk about in detail about what I was doing. And I think one advice would be go for somewhere where there is someone who's doing some, at least some similar research rather than just doing it on your own. And in retrospect, I could see that there were places probably that, that had more people, but I didn't think of it that way at the time. So I think, I think that would be one of my, one of my pieces of advice would be if possible become part of some sort of group or team of researchers rather than doing it as a lonely pursuit. Ensure you have ample opportunities for interthinking. We could summarize exactly. that as. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. What's your information diet like? Who's, whose work do you particularly follow? Is there anyone who you really enjoy following on Twitter, uh, publications, books, things like that? Yeah, I certainly have found, uh, I think Dylan Williams' work is very useful and, and valuable. And the people like Noreen Webb in the state who does great work on talking classrooms 
who I always follow. I think there are a number of researchers, there's certainly people in various parts of the world who I always try and attend their, their, their talks at conferences as well and so on. Twitter's a bit of a random instrument, isn't it? I mean, mm. I, I read... I read a lot of tweets by Mike, Michael Rosen, who's a, the poet, a children's poet, who's also a professor at, at um, one of the univers- UCL in London. So I, I do read, read a lot of him because I've chosen to follow him. And I, I look out for other things that come up, even people I don't really agree with, just so I know what people are thinking. But um, I think it's very, I find it very hard to, to think who I would pick on in particular. I think I kind of try and keep a, fairly broad spectrum of things and try and read read i tend to read articles and things by what the the, the topic is rather than the um rather than who the author is got it so i've just read a really interesting book by um which you might be interested in too sure. um called talk by elizabeth stokoe who is again a psychologist of spoken language i've just done a review from it which should go on our oracy cambridge website soon and she doesn't do work in education at all she does work in other kind of settings where talks used as a tool, such as crisis negotiation and things mm. like that, talk and things. And so I, I certainly follow her, her work. So I try not to just read within education, but, but to read things that are, you know, irrelevant, but not necessarily narrowly so. Mm, very wise. What's next for Neil Mercer? What are you currently excited about? I'm excited because... After all these years, in the UK and I think in other countries, Oracy as a curriculum subject and a, a matter for discussion and serious treatment in education is actually coming into its own. The word, as you probably know, was invented by Andrew Wilkinson back in the 60s to try and give spoken language in education the same status as literacy and numeracy. But then because of the back-to-basics agendas of governments, especially in the UK, after that, uh, there was a national oracy project, but then the word even almost got lost because they said, no, it should be back to basics, reading, writing and arithmetic. It's gradually come round to, to being treated seriously as something that should be explicitly part of the curriculum, spoken language, the teaching of spoken language skills. And there's a, we've been part of this movement glad to say, are working with other organizations like Voice 21, the English Speaking Union, and so on. And there are organizations like Oracy Australia, which have been pushing this for some time. And we've now heard that they've, they've actually set up a parliamentary inquiry, a committee of inquiry in the British Parliament to look at Oracy in education, and that's being launched in May. So at the moment, my, my big interests are not so much in at the moment with exploring new kind of lines of research, but with trying to see making the link between research and practice and policy and trying to see what we can make sense of from the research evidence we have that should, in a serious and sensible way, influence educational practice and educational policy. So that's, that's what's on. And the new thing will be this inquiry starting in May. We're running a conference at Oracy Cambridge in, in July which will take this on and, again, have this aim of linking research and practice. So that's my main agenda now is that, is that link. And my colleague, Hughes Hall at Cambridge, it sees it as one of its, its main aims and it's doing it in other fields such as medicine and politics and, and technology. So we're trying to say the time has now come to try and make sure 
that the science, uh, if you like, is being taken account of and is made accessible to people in different fields. We're just set, not me, but the college, people in the college setting up one, not surprisingly to do with climate change. Because again, I think, as you've seen from the recent demonstrations in the UK and everywhere else, young people are saying we need to take account of the science and do something about what's happening. So I think that's exciting. Mm. And I think it's not so much we need more info, we need what we've got to be made accessible and relevant and taken account of. Definitely. Now, just very quickly, Oracy, now it's going to have multiple components. I Discussion is one of them, obviously. Are there, yeah. other, are there other components of Oracy? Just very quickly. Yeah, if people look on our website, for example, if you Google Oracy Cambridge, our website will come up. And under that, if you want to look at the Oracy toolkit, what we actually do is we've linked and specified all the various skills that are involved in Oracy to try and make it understandable for teachers and other people in the way that reading and writing skills have been for some time. And so, yeah, I mean, if you, if you think of the basic things that you want children to learn to do, one of them is, yes, they should learn how to be an effective group member and work and talk well, well in groups. The other thing they should do is be able to stand up confidently and express their ideas clearly in public. Another thing you should be, they should be able to engage in a reasoned and practical debate so that they take account of other points of view and they're able to, you know, do this in, in that kind of setting. And another one would be, it relates to what we talked about earlier, to know how to use talk effectively to help somebody else to learn, to help somebody else to understand something they don't already. And so there's a set of different things like that, which involve different kinds of abilities and different contexts will require different things. If you're giving a speech in public, your body language can be quite important. It can put listeners off or it can help. Uh, if you're on the phone, it's irrelevant. So different kinds of contexts will have different skills will become more or less important. I think that's what we all need in, in education. We need to be aware of the range of, of oracy skills and quite why and how children need to develop these different kinds of skills. They're, they're going to become effective speakers and listeners. Really. Mm, and perhaps oracy could become uh, one of the four R's because it has as yeah. much of an R in it as arithmetic. So, yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. you're pretty yeah. set there, Neil. Uh, final question, Neil. Um, any last calls to action for listeners or things you'd like them to go away today and do? Yeah, if, if, I think if you're a teacher or in charge of an educational institution, I think it should be to think of whether the children in that institution are given the opportunity to develop the spoken language skills to the extent that will help them in their lives. And I think that that is probably one of the main things I, I would say to go away with. And if you're not sure, then think of how you can find out whether they are and, and how you can review what's happening. I think that well, that's one of the things I'd expect people to do. And if you're a teacher yourself, I think you should probably realize that children's futures in terms of their ability to use spoken language are probably highly dependent on what you do because lots of children won't necessarily have the broad breadth of experience outside school that help them to develop a proper talk repertoire and know how to use talk for learning and to use talk for a, a communication so just unfortunately it's kind of putting it's, it's saying putting a bit of pressure on really but saying that you could be their only hope yeah right <laughs> yeah transcending their future and so if you can go away and do something about it and i would say that to parents as well and to to anyone who has any influence over the future of, of young people 
think of how they're being helped to develop this vital and, and really important tool of spoken language. Neil Mercer, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a very wide-ranging discussion. We've touched on everything from evolution to, um, to you know, real practical classroom practices and everything in between. It's been incredibly stimulating for me. You know, your work has inspired me to do some new things in the classroom that I feel are working and I feel are going to build into more positive things in the future. I'm sure that'll be the case for some listeners as well, and we look forward to learning more about RSC in future. Thank you very much. It's been very nice to talk to you, Oliver. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Neil Mercer. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com. And this week, that also includes a link to the blog in which I detail exactly how I use the Thinking Together resources in my classroom. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could share it with your friends and colleagues. And as always, if you've got any suggestions of future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, please, please, please drop me a line via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week and until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.